<clears throat> the Fetus Swarm is a huge undead of challenge rating 7. It has 10 d12 hit dice uh, for an average of 65 HP, a plus 2 to its initiative bonus, AC of 16, a reach of 5 feet, uh, the abilities engulf frightful presence, it has the qualities undead, fire resistance 25, turning immunity, and it has defeats, combat reflexes, multi-attack, and weapon finesse bite. James Raggy, eat your heart out. The question is, of course, like, this fetus swarm was brought to life, these pickled fetuses were brought to life by the influence... Most of the components of this fetus swarm are not even feti. Oh, true. Yeah, there are a whole bunch of things that were in jars that just happened to involve feti. Um, but the question is, like, okay, they've been brought to life by the influence of the Ascension of the Magdalene painting. Yeah, somehow. Which is fair enough if you're sort of hand-waving magical effects. But I would rather it was, like, something that was more linked to, like, the content, to the, the themes or symbology of the painting. Yeah, like, just a little. Um, I mean, hey, at least this creature got its own stats, at least, as opposed to the thing in the sewers that's just a shambling mound. It's just a pile of trash that's standing as the shambling Oh, yeah, yeah. Just a pile of trash. Yeah, that's fine. Um, Now, if I was doing... Actually, that would be it. That's what I'd do. Like, the the pile of trash would just be like a a shambling mound. It's just just a a normal encounter. But then later, when you meet the the, the, the fucking... um, The fetus swarm. The mound of fetuses, it it comes up like it's going to attack you, but actually they just grab onto you. Um, The fetus... Mound, the fetus swarm. Um, you think that it's going to attack you, but it just they—they they all just grab onto you and say, "Mama, mama, yeah. mama," um, and you have to deal with that <laughs> instead. Because then it's going to be like, "Are you going to kill these feti?" Because then you're going to have to take a violence check and a big one and a hell, like a, a self check probably. Yeah. Or are you going to like bring them around with you? Like it becomes like a different kind of problem, a more interesting problem. Yeah, if the swarm and just, that's like, kind of characteristic of. Uh, Ascension of the Magdalene is a module. There's a lot of cool ideas in here that, or at least very inspirational ideas, right? That leave a lot to be desired in their execution. Would have been cooler if it was cooler? Is that what you're saying? Yes. It would have been cooler if it was cooler. Uh-huh. I think that's kind of characteristic. Of, that, that, that's like, is a pretty good encapsulation of my opinion of the module, at least. There's a lot of very inspirational ideas in here. Uh, shame that they weren't done better. Look, look, it, it's 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 the only historical published, as far as I'm aware, uh, UA module. Um, clearly, some good work went into it. Uh, it was clearly not. It clearly had some work uh, put in to convert it all to the open gaming license. Um, our beloved open gaming license that nothing will ever go wrong with. Uh, I hadn't even considered... Yeah, the timing for this is just beautiful, isn't this, Thorson? It's it's called synchronicity. I hadn't even thought about that. Um, Yeah, so um, today we're going to be talking about Ascension of the Magdalene. And Ascension of the Magdalene is a uh, interesting little artifact uh, from a very particular period of role-playing game history. 
Okay. How much how much D20 content do you want? Do you want piles of it? Do you want the entire game store full of it? Uh, Listen, you, have that. you only need or- to learn one system. It's so great. And I know, I know we said that before with GURPS, but this time it's a system that you guys already have to know because it's what D&D runs in. This can't possibly go wrong. At, at least GURPS, like, it sort of knew its place. I'd go up to the GURPS section of the game store and it's all GURPS. And I knew what I was getting, like, this is GURPS, yeah. this is all GURPS here, and there's lots of good, cool books here, and I liked it, like, I'll buy a bunch of these books, and I'll never run this game, but these books are good. And it was a different story with the D20 stuff, because it was just pile, it was spreading. It was like a, it was like a moss that was spreading across all the shelves, and I'm like, no, 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 this is too much. Yeah, say a little about GURPS, uh, the system knows what it is, and all the source books are... Very good repositories of gameable material for whatever broad kind of game you want to do with it. You want to do a fucking post-apocalyptic game? Grab the GURPS source book for it. See what ideas that they have in there. You want to run a horror game? GURPS Horror has some great advice for that sort of thing from Ken Height himself. Even though the system materials, you you know, it's it's for GURPS. Uh, so that's, that's either... Uh, why you're a big part of why you're here or an out and out deal breaker. The fluff is generally quite good. And, you know, if you want a repository of information for a given period of history or a given genre of fantasy or sci-fi or whatever, um, yeah, that is focused on gameability. GURP splats are usually very good at that. But D twenty, um, <laughs> D. You, you miss you miss you miss certain things with the GURPS books. Like the GURPS book about the war against the Kator yes. was very interesting. Um, it didn't prepare me for the um, homoeroticism um, in the book. Well, just no, the the just the gay sex scenes in the books. It wasn't prepared. Not a problem. I like this too, but it was surprising. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> no, nah, that was a separate splat book. We, 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 that, this would tell oh, right. detailed in GURPS gay sex. Oh, no. <laughs> there would have been like a perfect time in history for GURPS LGBT... Uh, what was it? LGBTQ to come out. It, 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 it didn't happen, but there was a, like a sliver of time where it could have come out, where it's not an inconceivable like idea. If GURPS had like notability for five more years, I do not doubt sure. that would have happened. <laughs> it would probably be quite a good source book, actually. It would probably have a bunch of cool stuff, which is like um, tangential. No, it'd probably yeah, legitimately it would probably be like a really good source on LGBT history. Yes. Yes. Um, let's go. We have to find the Neverwhen universe where that was published. Unfortunately, in this one, we're stuck with just GURP Sex, the fan produced black oh. book. Because oh, no. nothing gets you going like a 3D6 bell curve. Oh, is that, are you making that up? No! <laughs> GURP Sex exists. Oh, no. It's not. I'm pretty sure it's not even a joke like GURP's Asparagus is. GURP's Asparagus. Okay, let's. <laughs> Now I'm just thinking about the amount of, like, never when GURPS source books there must be. Ah, uh, the, the mind boggles 
at the licenses that it possibly could have gotten their hands on. Considering what they did, you know, GURPS Memory Alpha yeah. is still one of the most played Star Trek RPGs. And one of the few yeah. uh, GURPS lines that they still release print copies of. Interesting, interesting. But yeah, like, a, you know, of, of course there's GURPS sex coming out in the early 2000s, right? This is the era of the book of erotic fantasy. This is the era of we need to have generic source books for everything because systems don't matter. Systems don't systems matter. Systems don't matter. It's all about Sorry. the content that you make for them. Which is why, in a sense, that this book exists. So, Ascension of the Magdalene uh, is by Rick Neal, uh, edited by John Tynes. I think this was like one of the last RPG products that John Tynes worked on until he basically retired from the RPG industry because he realized mm. he it was mathematically impossible him for him to make money off it at the time. Um, the book that ended John Tynes' role-playing game career. This was part of Atlas Games' Coriolis line, which was kind of their whole mm. D20, their, their line of D20 products. Um which some good stuff came out of it. Um, I'm honestly, I have a soft spot for John Tynes' uh, third edition adventure, Three Days to Kill. It, it's the sort of um, open ended uh, problem solving that I tend to like in adventures. It's the the goal of it was straight up to be like, all right, I want to do something that's like a Rainbow Six mission, but with magic items replacing all the techno thriller doohickeys. So, mm-hmm. you know, you get all these magic items that, like, let you see through walls and all that sort of shit. And you use it to just raid a house that a cult's holding out in. And it's a it's a fun little adventure. I'm fond of it. And it has that nice sort of uh, Lieber-esque spin on fantasy where adventures are kind of uh, morally gray dirtbags. Which is my preferred flavor of D&D fantasy. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, it's more... Um, Mufafid and Grey Mouser yeah, exactly. sort of esque exactly. maybe exactly. Yeah. which is probably the single biggest influence on D&D as conceptualized by Gygax uh, much more so than Lord of the Rings mm-hmm. but also don't forget the racial essentialism uh, well anyway. yes yes hey hey hey, hey. awesome point awesome point uh, to be fair I don't think there was much of that in Favre and the Grey Mouser there was a lot of weird sexism oh no there was there was a lot of weird sexism Oh, sure. I do like looking at this Coriolis line. I like the fact that they brought out books for Anonami's Rune, Ars Magica, and, and Feng Shui. Because yep. um, you had to convert everything to D20 pretty- back in those days. I do like the idea of like some madman running an OGL game that just like merges all those together. Like, let, let's do an Unknown Army's Ars Magica Feng Shui I'm game. I'm sure someone tried it. Uh, I hope someone tried it. So, yeah, I guess to give some further historical context for it, uh, this was in the early 2000s. When was this published exactly? Uh, 2002. So this was shortly after the OGL was released. And... I thought you were going to say shortly after 9-11, but okay. Nothing... <laughs> The two very related occurrences, but I I don't no, have yes. the time to get into that in this episode. We we don't, we don't have the bandwidth for that elliptony right now. And uh, luckily, nothing bad will ever happen to the OGL. Ever, it will stay yep. the exact same because it was written <laughs> in the OGL that it is uh, that it is a perpetual license. 
So when the OGL came out, uh, this was right after 3.5, 3.5, 3rd edition had just come out. And RPGs weren't in the best space financially at the time. Um, White Wolf was his, had kind of uh, started uh, spiraling downwards because their uh, business strategy... Uh, of just churning out splat books was uh, giving diminishing returns, and that kind of applied to the rest of the RPG industry because, we, with the exception of D and D, basically everyone was operating off White Wolf's model of how to run an RPG business. And then on top of that, D and D had been super big in a while, and then. Uh, they came out with 3rd Edition. And 3rd Edition was supposed to fix all the weird kludgy leftovers and holdovers from AD&D fundamentally being a game at its foundation designed for dungeon crawling and finally turn it into a system for broad fantasy adventuring that can handle a ton of stuff. Like, it has an actual skill system. It doesn't have weirdly... uh, different uh level scaling between classes it it definitely ran into its own issues but the the big thing was that with third edition they released the ogl because they realized hey Uh this will sell even better if we aren't the only people that are producing content for it It, also probably uh Uh D &D license changing hands from uh tsr to wizards probably had something to do with the uh change in philosophy too i'd imagine Ah, uh, that's that's the dark days when they discontinued Alternity. I'm so angry. I never really read much in Alternity, though. I did read a little bit of Dark Matter stuff, though. It was always like, all right, this is fun, uh, but a lot of this is just a not as fun version of Delta Green slash Unknown Armies. That's the problem. That's that's the thing because I I encountered Dark Matter before Delta Green, which is the right like. Uh, it's it's the right uh that's a good order. that's a good gateway drug yep hey there were some good books i liked tangents that was their uh they like uh meant to be like sliders type book and it had some cool stuff oh, in okay yeah I, I heard about that one but i've never like even seen a pdf or anything so in this context they're like oh fuck everyone's learning basically every rpg company out there was like oh fuck everyone's learning the new D&D system, and we can release content for it. Not only that, we can get more players for our big RPG product lines by converting them to D20. And this led to a lot of crazy shit at the time. Uh, A lot of games that weren't uh, the best to convert to uh, a 3.5 third edition foundation. Ended up getting converted. But hey, give it a go. Give it a see what happens. And then, uh, on top of that, you had Atlas Games getting the wonderful idea of like, hey, let's convert Unknown Armies to D20. Kind of. And so exists Ascension of the Magdalene. The Unknown Armies dungeon crawler set in uh, early 17th century Prague with... Double stats for D20 and Unknown Army 2nd Edition. You have to wonder why they made that decision. Because I feel it was like a sort of like a a tester. 
like sort of to test like is this gonna work like we'll bring this out first and if it like sells like hotcakes then we'll bring out like the full conversion Anonami's OGL but the choice of a historical setting and the particular scenario I can see why they wanted to do that choice as like a sort of a, a conceptual bridge between unknown armies and like traditional sort of like yeah. D&D style fantasy by setting it in did the Renaissance, but I think it sort of be, it didn't quite gel. No, like thematically, no. maybe or something. I would agree, partially in just kind of the different setting assumptions. Prague in the early 17th century has a lot more firearms than the average D and D setting does, for example, um, and this book emphasizes that heavily. Especially at the time, um, I think the, now people are more willing to accept like firearms within their fantasy game, or at least it's more common. But especially back then, I remember people were like even more against it than they are now. It's like, ah, it ruins my fantasy if you've got... It's a two-pronged thing, I think. One is sort of just kind of assumptions of what is or is not like allowed in quote-unquote fantasy the answer which is yeah. whatever the fuck you want it to be it's pretend it doesn't matter it's cold it's cold fucking fantasy yeah. dude come on the <laughs> second one being it's honestly hard to design a combat system that handles both close combat and firearms combat in a reasonable way um it, it's it's, it's kind of hard to mix those two i think I don't know. I think there's a lot of assumptions about, um, like, people would say, like, if people had guns, they'll just eat it, immediately kill everyone. Like, like really over-exaggerating how deadly a gun is versus a sword in a way that was just like, well, no, being slashed, like, be, you could, it doesn't matter if you're shot or you're stabbed by a sword. You're just as dead. I agree. Like, I, think it's, fuck you I up. think it's less about uh, lethality. Because, you know, you can make a role-playing game system that has gunfights and isn't particularly lethal. People just get shot and they're fine. I mean, fuck, look at Feng Shui. Yeah. I know. Third edition was weird because it was both trying to be, like, simulationist. But simulating a world that was designed to accommodate all the D&Disms. Yeah. It doesn't work. It, It doesn't work. Yeah, it's sort of like even when you're looking back at like um like that time period, the sort of like swashbuckling fiction. Yeah. Like there's not much swashbuckling fiction where they spend like, okay, I have to reload now. Like they they have the like the rapier or whatever. Um and they avoid the bullets. Well the solution that this module has is just everyone has fucking bracers or pistols. Everyone. <laughs> Including a mechanomancer with a vest right. that allows him to like hold twenty pistols that are and it's just automatically reloading the pistols constantly. I mean, it makes sense that Mechanomancer... No, I, I think that's honestly a fun artifact. <laughs> There's a yeah. lot of cool shit in this book. It's just frequently very poorly designed. I'd like a Mechanomancer that just has a, like, a clockwork who follows him around, like reloading for him. It's just like handing yeah. over the gun bang. Hand over the gun bang. As a clockwork manservant? Yeah, exactly. Um, so, um, yeah, this is a weird little artifact. Uh it, it honestly probably could have only ever been published in like 2002, 2003. I suspect kind of what led to this thing's existence is that 
it had probably kind of languished in development hell for a couple years as just an unknown army's thing. Mm. You know, it was kind of hard to justify just releasing this as its own product. This is like a little pamphlet. They There weren't enough people working on Unknown Armies content at the time to really like do a full historical scenario book or something similar. They they could have taken this and the um, uh, history of the cult underground and put them together. I agree. That probably would have like, been the yeah. best way to handle it, but it sounds like the history of the cult underground got dropped way mm. before this did. Hell, they maybe this was written yeah. originally around the same time that was getting uh, drafted with the idea like, oh yeah, here's the scenario for it. And yeah, the court of Rudolph II is a... Great period of history to do uh, any sort of occult role-playing game because there's so much fodder for it, which this adventure takes or tries to take advantage of. But when you when you think about it, like like think of the number of um like Call of Cthulhu has published a bunch of like well some books which are like here's a bunch of scenarios set in different time periods and they're pretty cool. I agree. I'd love to see an unknown army's version yeah. of that. And hey, a friend of our Melonbread has been releasing a bunch of historical scenarios recently, and those have been pretty cool. Yeah, I want to talk about one of them later. The more recent one he did was set in 323 BC. Yes. Um, Alexandrian game. It's pretty cool. So I suspect kind of what happened is this thing had been languishing in development hell for a number of years, and they were just kind of like, ah, we probably won't ever release it. Kind of, or maybe we've have gotten released as like a PDF or something, uh, like what happened with uh, the uh, Thin Blue Black Line. But uh, um, yes. then the OGL comes out, and they're like, oh, we can put these two together. Uh, let's take this idea, mix it with some D20 stats for Unknown Army's material, and that way we can sort of pad out the page count and justify having it printed. And then we got both a historical Unknown Army's adventure and your D20 Unknown Army's conversion. Yeah, and I'm sure all the all your unknown armies fans will enjoy playing paying the price for a book with a bunch of material that they won't use if they're not into the OGL. And especially as we all know, the real strength of unknown armies, Tui especially as a system, is dungeon crawling. Oh yes, absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, that's the other thing. Uh, this scenario is like an out and out dungeon crawl. Um, a, a big chunk of it's like a weird gazetteer for like. Rudolph II's Prague's Occult Underground, but, like, the actual, like, playable parts of it are pretty much all classic room-by-room dungeon crawling. I will say I did. I enjoyed the Gazetteer section. I would section. agree. I'd agree. Uh, it's, not, it's not super extensive, but I liked it because it was like, I liked how the sections were just, like, giving just enough information to be like, oh, that's cool. There's, like, a Storm God hill. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's cool. There's like the clock tower. This is like, this is useful Yeah, there's stuff. a lot of good hooks in here and gives a nice overview of Prague in the time period. Like basically about as much as you would need to get started running a game there. And then it brings all the stuff you'd expect from an occult game in Prague. You got fucking uh, Edward Kelly in there. You got the Knights of Malta. He wasn't alive in 1610. Yeah, we'll get into that. We'll get into that. We'll get into that. You got the Rosicrucians. You got the Golem of Prague. All of them are here. And barely anything is done with them. 
because they aren't really relevant in the dungeon crawl. No, it's it's like they're the things that you interact with if you want to before and after the dungeon crawl, and you probably it's sort of like it's a bit of a choice by the DM, like what elements are we going to throw in? Yeah. And but it's it's sort of like I'm just imagining running this and like you, you're getting involved with one of the factions and you do the dungeon crawl, and most of the scenario will be the dungeon crawl, and then afterwards it's just like okay, it's um just all these different groups out of nowhere coming to attack you because you've got the painting. It's like... <laughs> yeah, it's that sort of shit. And, like, it, it gives a bit of lip service to one of these groups is going to be your patron and you get to pick pick which one depending on what makes sense for your group. Or... Um, and then the rest are chasing after you as you go in the dungeon crawl, but it doesn't actually give any, like, mechanics or guidelines for that. It's just like, yeah, they're chasing after you and they might run into some of the traps. Let's give some context uh, before I go into what I'm going to yeah, go into. Yeah. What is the scenario? What is the dungeon crawl? What is the uh, mo- uh, the uh, objective of this dungeon crawl? So, the setup is that a few years back, Corvaggio ascended to the Invisible Clergy. Uh, while he was painting a piece of Mary Magdalene. And apparently this painting was so symbolically... And uh, satisfactorily potent that it led to Caravaggio ascending as a unstated archetype. My guess would be the artist, as as opposed to the uh, the cover story where he was just probably murdered on a boat. Yeah, like th- that's one of the fun things. Like going through this is like seeing all of the his like. It's fun from like a historiography standpoint of like, oh, this is what people in the 90s thought happened to these historical figures at the time. And now in the intervening 20 years, here's what historians now think. Like, uh, Caravaggio what? was assumed to just be murdered, but now it's like it might have been a mix of syphilis and dying from infected wounds. There's been these long-running rumors of him having killed himself. Oh, yep. Oh yeah, but we do know that he was uh, ambushed by um, someone, some men in the pay of a knight he wounded in yes. Malta uh, in, in in October 1609. So it could have been, and that's like he was like super disfigured, and like the rumors were around that he was dead. But he painted um, two paintings, or three paintings, according to this book. But he painted the uh, the one with uh, David with the head of Goliath, where there's like a a twink holding Caravaggio's head. And uh, Salome with the head of John the Baptist, which is, um, again, his own head on a platter. Uh, so this was a period... Good paintings, really good paintings, but he was in a yeah, bad he, he state. wasn't doing too well. Um, he, and th- that may have been partially due to syphilis. Um, <laughs> it's good to see that his syphilis did not affect his painting uh, abilities. No, yes, that's good. It's true. It's true. Uh, because Caravaggio ascended to the clergy, uh, this painting, The Ascension of the Magdalene, it has become an extremely potent artifact. And originally the church was trying to get a hold on it, but they've, uh, the guy they hired ends up selling it instead to Rudolf II, uh, emperor of the Holy Roman Empire at the time, uh, and a well-known patron of academics and occultists, because Rudolf II would like to add the painting to his collection of weird doodads. And 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 sex sexy art. He loved his yes. sexy art, even though this is the only piece of sexy art in his collection. If I remember correctly, 
No, is it? Uh, oh, I'm thinking of someone else. No, I'm sure. No, like historically, you're right. I'm talking about like far as rooms in the dungeon. That is oh. his uh, weird basement stash of all this shit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And one of several factions hires your guys' group to sneak into the sewers adjacent his castle, and then through that enter his collection. And then abscond with the Ascension of the Magdalen. Uh, the Apostle Factions are the Rosicrucians, who are interested in it just because of its general occulted nature. The Knights of Malta slash uh, Order of St. Cecil, who are interested in repressing its occulted nature. Um, there's also a sect of Mechanomancers called the... The Order of Hero yes, of Alexandria? the Order of the Hero of Alexandria who are interested in using the artifact as a power source for a perpetual motion machine to uh, power a clock tower. And I think there was one other potential faction that could hire you. Oh, what? We've got Rosicusians. We've got... Wait, what did you say? Rosicusians, Cecilites, Hero, the Heroites, whatever. And um, you could be working for the Zakla Bastel, the... um, Thief guy. Yeah, or he could be working for Rabbi Lowe, the master of the Golem of Prague. Though, uh, or they could even be in bed with Edward Kelly. Not, not literally. They aren't John Dee's wife. <laughs> now, what, what I was thinking as I was reading these sections about like potential patrons is it kind of comes with a sort of very D and D like adjacent sort of assumption that the that your heroes are like wandering like um murder hobos who are going to get a patron yes. and i'm like that's fine that's you could have that but i didn't like it as it was like it was sort of like the assumption that it would have to be that way because i think it would be more interesting to have the players already just be members of that group in the way that you're a member of the sleepers or tni there's or whatnot. some space for there that space, like, but there it kind of says that like hey you could already be involved with the order of saint cecil doing this sort of occult suppression work yeah, or sure. be part of the Rosicrucian order and trying to collect these artifacts because they're interested in that stuff. And one thing I do really like is one of the things that the, um, yeah, the Order of the Hero of Alexandria offers if you do this job for them is they'll teach you mechanomancy if you want, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, that's, that's, pr- that's pretty cool. And if you're doing it from that point of view, if you're doing it as like insiders or outsiders trying to get in with an in-group, that's cool. Um, but... For example, I was thinking, so I've got a bit of a list here. Um, so if you're working for the Rosicrucians, it's pretty self-straightforward. You're just low-level Rosicrucians, maybe. You can have, like, make up your um, motivations of why you're involved, but that just means that you're a Rosicrucian and you have your, I can't remember his name, but, like, um, the the sort of, like, a handler-type sure. character, the one NPC. I don't remember most of the NPCs, like to be handler. honest, that aren't actual historical figures. <laughs> sure. And with the with the Cecilites, you could easily just play what what you guys are Knights of Malta. Yep. Easy. You're like the Battle of Knights of Malta. You're basically the Blue Line, kind of, but you're also bankers, yep. uh, which is interesting. Uh, it could be that you're part of a contingent, which is like there's other knights, but they're off doing something else, like maybe harassing uh, Rabbi yep. Lowe, because that would be <laughs> that would make sense, or or like trying to like deal with like Protestant. Uh, Rebels. Yeah, like, I mean, this is uh, this is also with the backdrop of the Reformation going on, though. That doesn't really come into things too oh, yeah. much, because there's not really a Protestant faction. 
not in the book. Um, it really could have been because like this is like a cup like a year or two before the defenestration yeah, yeah. of Prague, where all these imperial officials got thrown out of windows. So uh, yeah, a, a, a Protestant group would be interesting, possibly linked to um, Rudolf's brother Matthias, yes, that's who what was I'm like about to seize the yeah, throne. Th- exactly. Yeah. Linked with Matthias. Matthias, by this point, has figured out that, oh, fuck, uh, Brother Rudolph does actually have some uh, powerful artifacts down there. I want some of those for myself. And uh, either for my own obscure purposes or to settle the highest bidder. Yeah, because if you're playing the Protestants, one good thing is that it gives a bit of an extra edge to the conflicts with both the uh, Knights of Malta and yeah. Rabbi yeah. Lowe. Uh, because of like the religious, um, both the anti-Semitism and the religious yeah. fighting. One interesting, uh, like a subversion of a Cecilite sort of uh, faction would be involving um, this Car- Cardinal Scipione Borghese, hmm. who was uh, one of Caravaggio's patrons. He was the nephew of the Pope and he was put in like high positions through ne- papal nepotism. Um, but he was also... Um, Known for collecting a, a vast, um, a, a vast collection of homoerotic art. Ah. Um, so he always, yes, and he was. Uh, he wasn't just a patron of Caravaggio; also other artists. Um, that was one of the reasons why Caravaggio was on that boat. I think it was the main reason he was on that boat was because he was trying to hand over these paintings to Scipion Borghese to get a pardon for like activities hmm. um, when he mysteriously died. So. If the cardinal was behind, like it would be funny if the order of the uh, Sensessa was sent out there, but the like the big reveal was like, no, it's just the cardinal. He wants that painting. Bring it to the painting. Uh, I, as far as other patrons that you could be involved with, I could easily see one where you're working for Rabbi Low just to do him a favor because he's a very well respected member of the local Jewish community, and you're all oh yeah <laughs> Jewish members of the local occult underground. And then you, then you got you got your golem buddy to help you, and the golem can be used to smash through all these doors if you don't want to deal with all these crazy high pick lock checks. Now, now how I see this, how I see the Rabbi Low faction, is you're a bunch of rabbinical students nice. who are being uh, instructed in the Talmud and Kabbalah by Rabbi Low, um, and he's given you temporary control over Einstein. He's like in in, in in his name sort of thing. Uh, which could be an NPC or uh, or played by a PC with like um, sort of like Drax from Guardians of the Galaxy with a very sort of like uh, take things super literally sort of thing. Basically, a bunch of uh, Jewish kids who are probably like in their late teens, early twenties, um, like trying to like uh, raid the Wunderkammer would be an interesting setup. Another one that comes to mind is kind of playing up the Edward Kelly thing and say like, "All oh, right." The pregens for this module are all actual historical figures from the court of Rudolf II. So, uh, one of you can play Edward Kelly, oh, yeah. one of you can play Tycho Bray, one of you can play Johannes Kepler. That's cool. That's really cool. And, and somehow, uh, after being deposed, Edward Kelly is like, all right, guys, like this shit's legit. I'm going to use this to prove to you that magic is real. But we need to break in to Rudolf II's stash so I can get this painting. One option is um, that Rudolf was known as a womanizer who had a string of illegitimate children over the decades. So having everyone be like one of his bastards, like <laughs> oh, so coming good. for revenge, or at least one good. character would be fun. 
an alternative to Edward Kelly, who historically died like 13 yes, years before that, that's, that's also place. a thing, yes. Um, very on point with the on-and-off relationship that he has with Rudolph II and his court. But, yeah, um, it's, it's about 15 years too late. Yes. But there is an option of um, Elizabeth Jane Weston, uh, who was his stepdaughter... Um, an English Czech poet known for her neo-Latin poetry, um, who very unusual to be published in this time period as a woman. Uh, she right. was given a like a formal like education, which is also very unusual. Spoke like uh, spoke Czech, English, German, Italian, and Latin, and she wrote like uh, New Latin verse in a bunch of different a bunch of different things. Um, she sent letters to Rudolph, um, like when her husband, her, sorry, um, her stepfather was alive, like pleading for him. Um, she was also interestingly known as Virgo Angla, Latin for the English maiden, uh, which gives an interesting tie in with the Magdalene in a way. Um, and as a, as a sort of patron, like a, a historically non-anachronistic patron, I think she would be interesting because uh, there's no women in this. No. <laughs> there's no women in this entire book. Um, let's put in Elizabeth Jane Weston. No women in this book, which is all about getting a painting of like a woman avatar. Um, I guess it's very male gazy anyway. Well, but like, it doesn't have all, to be. all of the depictions of um, women in this scenario are literally objects. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. You could easily change that up a bit. Um, having Elizabeth Jane Weston as a patron would make it interesting. Another idea I had was um, looking over like the different... I found a website that was talking about Mary Magdalene and all the archetypes she could have um, embodied. And the list I've got is uh, the Enigma, the Divine Feminine, the Sophia, the Embodied Mother Goddess, the Black Madonna, the Bride of Christ, the Scorned One, the Repentant One, the Envied Companion of the Savior, the Co-Redemptrix, or the Tower. Um, so there's lots of options there. <laughs> I mean, basically what this module posits is that the Ascension of the Magdalene is... It's, it's a naked goddess tape for the 17th century. Basically. Basically, it's that. It references the fall of the keys. Does it? Yes. Where? Yeah, no, when you see the painting, it, it there's a whole bit about you have a vision of seeing, of, of ultimate loss and seeing keys falling. So you get a vision of Alex Abel dropping his car keys. That's amazing. Maybe it's more symbolic there. What, what's the symbology? Let's, let's get into that later. Yeah, um, no, it's... The, the the artifact itself is weird. The artifact itself is weird. One one thought, considering it's the connection with the Sophia, I thought the idea of like the players as a secret order of Gnostics might be fun. Yeah, sure. Hey, this would be too late for cat like Cathars, but yeah, just like a sect of crypto Gnostics. Well, that's it because um, yeah, crypto Gnostics because that's a good thing about like Gnostics. If you're doing like a, a like a creep, not creepy, but like a very very occulted hidden conspiracy in the Middle Ages, the fact that we didn't know fuck all about the Gnostics until the 1940s, like you can take everything yeah. we know now and just extrapolate it back into history and yep. say yeah, uh, because all these um the existing ex except for the Cecilites, every faction is just a straight up like historical occult organization. So why not have like make up one like this is the uh, the followers of so the order of Sophia, <laughs> and to go with the order of hero and the order of um... 
There, there's yeah, there's just so much potential for ideas in this scenario. But it's all sort mm-hmm. of the broad stroke stuff. Whenever it gets to the nitty gritty is when it really falls flat. There's yeah. some stuff I really like. I do like that it gives support for hey, do you want to run this for your standard unknown armies group? Yeah, sure. Here's some ways. Uh maybe it's a flashback episode when you find the Magdalene in a collection somewhere. Maybe the cop sends you back in time. I kind of like that one, even though it's really hokey. Well, if it's um, meant to be a precursor, or it literally is the Naked Goddess tape, being some Sector Naked Goddess people sent back in time would yeah. be very interesting, yeah. especially if you want to go and, like, how do we exist in, like, 1610 in Prague when we're a bunch of women from chicago in 1999 or whatever <laughs> pornomancy is probably a lot harder one to get charges from it you need your sex acts painted instead of videotaped that, yeah that's 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 a fun twist i do like the idea of uh everyone playing just um if you're gonna go for the whole getting a patron thing being a group of being like one of the gangs of thieves under the authority of Zuckerbastel gives a nice framework for you like going and talking to the different factions because you're looking to see who will pay you the most to work for them. Since the module really kind of brushes over how which patron you actually have, it doesn't give enough detail for any of those for them to feel really playable in a significant way. Maybe. So there's definitely inspirational stuff here. There's like, there's really cool broad stroke stuff, but... All the stuff I want there to be nitty-gritty on, like, hey, how do you interact with all these factions before the dungeon crawl? Why would you interact with them? That's true. How would you go about uh, gathering information instead of just rolling a gathering information roll of a high enough DC? Which is what the module suggests you do. Fun. Yeah, like, how, how do you make... How do you actually give players opportunities to interact with these guys before they all show up out of nowhere uh, when you hand off the painting and try to steal it from you? I think if I was running it, I would say, and I was running with the thieves, I would have the thieves be like, okay, you're one group under Zakabastel, but you have your like rival thieves, which is yeah. a theme that they bring in the book. Like there might yeah. be other thieves. And you go to each of the groups and you're like trying to get the best deal. But also that other group is also like the other, the other gang, your rivals are also doing the same thing. And so whoever you choose, the rivals will choose the other one. And they're also trying to get into the wonder camera at the same time as you. And that becomes like that. So that whole that could be like one scenario, like one session would be like, like going around and understanding the different groups, yeah. And then later do the dungeon crawl, and then later do the aftermath of the dungeon crawl, sort of break it up. So it has like that whole the setting of Prague is has at least two sessions of like development. The one sort of alternate way of running this that uh, I actually kind of like how fleshed out it is is the option for running it in a standard fantasy campaign where they like offer alternate very standard fantasy names for all the npcs like edward kelly is instead keldar the knights of malta are the knights of storm isle like that shit's fun i enjoy that and it makes me wonder like okay is there someone out there that like ran this in their like d20 campaign and like as a result, brought in all these UA concepts into their fantasy world building. That's a lot of fun to me. Maybe. I can imagine it was a pretty wild, like, sessions or two. Yeah, um, absolutely. If someone's, if, for people especially used to, like, standard um, D&D sort of setting. Like, throw, it, 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 I could see that being a lot of fun. 
Now, and the other thing is, as far as using the factions, instead of just having them vaguely following you, you could expand the dungeon a bit and have these guys be factions within the dungeon. Like, hey, maybe some of these mm-hmm. thieves have a holdout of territory in the sewers somewhere, and that would make sense. Maybe the Knights of Malta are currently in the court of Rudolph II and trying to get into the vault that way. If you're willing to flesh out that approach of, instead of sneaking through the sewers, getting into the collection through intrigue, then that gives you the chance to interact with the knights and Rabbi Lowe. And that's a good opportunity to have some dead red shirts like yeah. scattered around this dungeon being like, oh, okay, there's a dead knight of Malta here. We better be careful yeah. in this room. Yeah. Don't know what yeah. killed him. I mean, yeah, the traps also are kind of iffy. I mean, like the big thing for me is like, I'm not against a UA dungeon crawl. This isn't a very good dungeon crawl. I think it was. I think it would probably worked well for this guy's campaign that he playtested. I think it worked pretty well. Um, it could have been developed more. Here's the thing for me, like, because let's discuss this a bit. So actually, do do we want to discuss? I guess more overall dungeon design stuff first, or do we want to go into nitty gritty examples of some of the rooms and shit first? Let's go through the rooms first. All right. All right. Let's see what we got here. Not everything needs a lot of detail. Like no. a lot of them are very. It's very D and D. In it's like he's oh, completely set. He's a sort of disconnected rooms in a weird yeah. dungeon. It's a seventeen room dungeon. The first five rooms are just kind of a sewer. Like not even kind of a sewer. They're they're literally a sewer. And basically every room has just some weird trap in it that you need to deal with. Usually by mm. succeeding on a weirdly high DC. For, I mean, this strikes me as kind of like a low-level adventure in D20 terms, right? Yeah, very much so. I can't imagine you doing this, like, higher than, like, fourth or fifth level. (laughs) You just stop blasting. But, like, there's a bunch of, like, locks and shit with, like, DCs of 25. And, like, is there another way of getting through these doors? Or do you just need to keep rolling until you get the lock? What's how, how does the shit work? Why are you making all these DCs so high? Basically, running this by the book, especially in D20, I could see a lot of points where you just run into a straight-up wall. Yeah. <laughs> like, how do we get past this? Yeah. Um, the, the Probably the most egregious version of that is the room that you actually get into the, into the uh, Wunderkammer through, which is uh-huh. this... Um, uh, lock based on a uh, th- there's like a water constantly pooling into this room and then once it reaches a uh, certain threshold yeah. uh, a switch clicks and then it all drains out and then right after it's drained yeah. out for like five minutes you have a chance to get through the door to this thing but you have to get through this super difficult lock first and then I'm thinking like okay what if you don't get through that lock in the five minutes is it just like alright I guess we try again in 24 hours that sucks. You all drown. <laughs> and now you're playing the next group that's coming in. There should be... Well, it's a locked door. <laughs> With a th- it's, it's a trap. It's a puzzle. I guess there's ways. It depends on who, what you're playing. I know mean, it's a puzzle. Well. It's like, fine. Kind of magical nonsense. Yeah, but like, it could lead to a lot of deadlocks, potentially. And, you know, it's not like a, exactly an interesting or risky decision. You know? Like, it's not like, a, oh, you need to pull this off and it's difficult... So you either need to be clever and figure out the puzzle through uh, tinkering with it or get really lucky with your rolls. It's just like, no, if you don't get lucky, you're fucked. You just arrive and there's already like 
one of the other factions are in there, like, trying to figure their way in, and then the water comes, and you're fighting with each other, and then you're going in to try to click the lock, and then before water comes, and you're running, fighting again. I mean, but, like, say it will, at least that trap's kind of, like, interesting. Uh, one of the trap still rooms is literally fucking rocks falling on you. Rocks fall, everyone dies. And then another room is somehow the Ascension of the Magdalene, despite being, like, a long-ass fucking way away on an entirely different floor, has animated a pile of trash. So you need to fight a shambling mound. So thanks to Ascension of the Magdalene, uh, shambling mounds now have UA stats. That's right. Um... It has 40 bash... 50 grab and squeeze, and 50 hide and garbage, and 150 wound points. Is this, what is the thematic link between um, a painting of the Ascension of the Magdalene and a shambling pile of cra- trash? <laughs> uh, that's, that's some politics in there. This is some culture war going on. I don't like it. I mean, okay. it doesn't seem to, like, it, it seems to be very indiscriminate with what it's reanimating. And that, that I know, it, it's a weird thing for. A naked goddess tape XP to be doing because I mean I haven't heard of the naked goddess tape ever uh, animating normally inanimate objects no I haven't um, that would bode very poorly for the sex toy locker at uh, sect headquarters at least there's some 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 thematic link there like if I'm breaking into the the hideout of the sect of the naked goddess a shambling mound of sex toys makes sense sure and is horrifying sure the fact that it's in the sewer raises a few questions but hey at least it like <laughs> makes sense for like sort of the domain of the magic fleshlights lined with teeth new campaign idea it's like toy story but you're all sex toys at the Naked Goddess Fantastic. HQ. Fantastic. Sold. One of you is playing like a living blow-up doll that's <laughs> going through an existential crisis. <laughs> that's that's pretty great. Oh, that's, that's the possibilities. The possibilities. Who wants to play the fleshlight? Uh, who wants to play the anal beads? Oh, crap. The sect is coming back. Positions, everyone. <laughs> Oh, who gets to play the bad dragon? Who gets to play the bad dragon dildo? What's the bad dragon? You don't know what a bad dragon is? I am shocked. Let me have a look. Bad dragon is a dildo company that makes uh, dildos uh, modeled after various animal penises. Oh, I see. Some fictional, some real animals. Why am I being judged for not knowing this? I'm not judging you. I'm just extremely surprised. Oh, the Fenra Dildo. Oh, the names. Oh, my God. What? Good Lord. All coming in a wide variety of sizes. Wait, I think I, I, think I have seen some of these, but let's move on. <laughs> or you could be like um, those uh, either fleshlights or dildos, which ha- are like taken from like uh, molds of actual people, like celebrities sure. or like porn sure. stars or whatever and you have a little bit of the personality of whoever was your model the model uh, that could be fun okay that m- maybe the toys have created their own minor cult centered around like the fleshlight modeled after the naked goddess which is, uh, that's a powerful yeah. artifact right there 
that's interesting. Um, I don't know. Sure, they, were they were they doing those back in the nineties? But maybe they were. I'm not sure, but hey, creative license. All things are possible through the invisible clergy tours. Maybe they just found it one day. Maybe they're trying to recreate it based on, um, <laughs> you know, documented evidence. Oh God. Anyway, that's, that's one. That that's uh, what if that's why they're trying to get all of her old lost porn tapes. Oh no! Yeah, that's the that's the main objective. Uh, we need every angle. Jesus, Jesus! This is what happened when we start talking about fucking gurp sex at the start of the episode. <laughs> but yeah, new campaign idea there. Throwing that there out. Uh, I'm sure everyone has a player group that'd be open to that exact idea. Oh sure, oh sure. Um. So once you get into the Wondercom or proper, uh, things get a bit more interesting. You know, there's a trophy room full of a bunch of uh, taxidermied mystical creatures like griffins and unicorns and centaurs. But the taxidermied creatures have mechanomantic skeletons. And that's a fun idea. I enjoy that. I like that because they're all like different animals that have been thrown together with a clockwork body. That's cool. One thing that... It's a really small thing, but... They had this thing where there's there's three animated animals in the menagerie, animated like uh, yeah. Yeah. things, like a unicorn, a griffin, and a centaur. And like if you touch one of them or do something, like they all attack you at once, which is such a D&D thing. And I was just like, no, one should attack you yeah. and you should fight it off. But a bunch of them have looked at you, so you're not quite sure what anything, another one's about to attack you. So it adds a bit of tension. It's like, well, we've defeated the centaur, but we're still in a room full of a bunch of them. Maybe we should tread carefully. Yeah. Um, next room is, has like a bunch of oracular equipment in there, including the Caravaggio Tarot, which is, has some very interesting implications for the setting. Oh, um, for the fact that it's all trumps and they all represent... It's implied that they represent different avatars, and there's like exactly 123 of them. There's exactly 123 of them, which is, hey, this implies that at least when this artifact was made... There was about that many members in the clergy. So they they don't need to worry about that fucking doomsday clock at all. It's like, yeah, no, there's 210 left to go. We're fine. It's 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 the 17th century. We can relax. Hey, hey, you know, th- that might be speeding up. I'd imagine that the rise of mass media has led to a lot more people ascending than there used to be. Yeah, but they don't have to worry about it then, in no, 1610. No. Well, hey, there's oracular equipment. They Of course they know that mass media is coming, obviously. They know about the fall of the keys. Oh, yeah. They know, they know <laughs> what kind of car Alex Abel was driving. Yeah. Uh, that's that's a fun kind of character, like a, a really sort of blasé, sort of Nostradamus-type figure who just knows, like, like just all the details. It like, has, like, sort of like the genie from Aladdin. <laughs> One idea I had for a group was because there are multiple references in this book to, and I quote, Red Indians as in Native yes. Americans. There's even a little section. There's even a piece of art. And what? And it, they mentioned that this was a period of time where there were various like, um, like embassies or Native Americans brought to Europe into various like courts and such. And I, what I thought was it would be interesting to have one character. If you want a, a PC playing just some like a Powhatan or something who's yeah, just been yeah. in Europe for a while. And yeah, then I absolutely. started thinking about that would be fun. Uh, not, not, not even play. Not even an avatar of the savage, which is what everyone assumes them to be. Yeah, just like yeah. an avatar of something else, or just a guy. And that reminded me of. Have you ever heard of the dreadnought hoax? I have not. So this was uh, this is from 1910. It was a prank uh, 
pulled by a bunch of guys, um, about a group called the Bloomsbury Group, um, who are a bunch of like jack-off intellectuals who... Is there any other kind? Oh, it's, no, no. <laughs> um, they dressed up and um, they hoaxed the British Navy saying that they were um, emissaries from the Sultan of Zanzibar. Um, and so they, they just blackfaced up and put on some like just weird robes oh, and they got a tour of the HMAS Dreadnought, which was like the, the like the, one of the big, like best ships. And they're just like, come in, come in. Oh, emissaries of the Sultan of Zanzibar. And they're walking around like talking nonsense and like being very silly. Um, the Tradil method. Yeah, it's pretty bad to do blackface, but at least the butt of the joke wasn't... It, the butt of the joke was the British Navy, so I think it's acceptable. Well, and the... Uh, uh, I mean, you know, they're still depicting stereotypes, but uh, I, this would have taken place long before uh, blackface was common in the media, I think. And, yeah, that's uh, minstrel true. shows that's are true. popular and stuff, so... And one of the people involved in the Dreadnought hoax was Virginia Woolf. Oh, all right. Okay, maybe not then. There's probably minstrel shows going on contemporaneously with this then. Yes, yes. According to press reports, during the visit to the Dreadnought, the visitors repeatedly showed amazement or appreciation by exclaiming, Bunga Bunga. Oh no. Oh god. That's, That's really bad. So bad. So terrible. But that got me thinking about like, um... Like imagining like a little group, but like um, who are like they're mostly pretending they're 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 red facing up. They're pretending to be Native Americans in order to get access to courts. Um, and this could tie into our idea of like the entropomancy. Um, one of them could be an entropomancer, but they're like they're basically just trying to con various courts of Europe. Uh, one of them's an actual Native American who got like tied up with them and is with them because they get access to cool shit. And I was, so, but I was thinking like, okay, what's their point? But I was thinking like, if one of them's an actual Native American, what would he be his motivation to get the, go inside the Wunderkammer and get shit? And then I was thinking of uh, the history of the cult underground. They mentioned like this whole period. Well, this is the start of the period where it's just all about the Europeans going out into the wider world and just looting all the magical artifacts. And I'm like, well, this could be an early attempt at revenge, being like, you know, fuck you. I'm going to take your painting, your magical painting, and take it back to New England and give it to my chief and fuck you all. That could be fun. I mean... The more straightforward thing, I think, is like, okay, there's another artifact that belongs to his tribe in the collection. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he's like, I want to get this other thing, but I'll help you get the painting at the same time. Yeah. yeah uh, sure. Because they're paying me. Fuck it. Yeah. Um, that kind of gives me the idea of like some sort of uh, archetype of the foreigner. But the fun thing they would be is it's a composite of like every human culture's idea of a foreigner. That's an idea. It would be interesting, because so, it's like things like the outsider and sort of things that have been yeah. um, purported. But imagine it was something like the esteemed foreigner. Like yeah, the that's Emerson, exactly like, what I'm like, thinking. Where it's it's more about naivete and h- hilarious social faux pas than right being like someone from an untouchable cast. That's right. That's it. Yeah, that's interesting because you can see lots of you can see there's plenty of historical examples of that on both ends like that's that's something like marco polo in china might yeah, be yeah exactly channeling marco polo would be a great example of that that's fun that's a lot of fun D- details are uh, sort of the stereotypes that are going to vary from culture to culture but there uh, i get a sense there is sort of this 
general concept of like, ah, esteemed foreigners, a man of great wisdom has come to uh, learn from our culture and frequently yeah. doesn't know much about it. So he, he keeps on making all these uh, silly mistakes, but it's fine because we respect him anyway. And no, he doesn't mean it will. I can see some like channel powers for that. Like you're able to be accepted in like status wise. Uh, because yeah. you're like an out of context problem and everyone has the vague idea that you're important and from far away and should be treated with respect or else it will be embarrassing for the country which which is very useful for getting into anywhere you want and also maybe a power where you can sort of cover up like especially if you're some like checker or charger just being doing weird magical stuff where you can um get away with shit by say, giving some bullshit explanations like oh in my culture we do this for blah 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 and people are like oh that makes sense even though what you're doing is just your own, whatever you're doing one you of know? the pieces of content in this book that I do actually like are the two new avatars that were given but we'll That's fun. go on a little bit later um, so the next room is the armory which has like a bunch of Weapons and shit. Though, so, like the the funny thing they throw in there is, oh yeah, in the place of pride on the rack at the end of the aisle is an old rusty gladius, etched into the blade. On one side is the phrase "mea culpa," <laughs> and on the other side is etched "Brutus." This is the treacher's blade. Yeah, just throw in the knife that killed Caesar as a as an artifact. Why not? Why not? Why not? Sure. I I, I like that artifact. It's very much. Um... It's like, yeah. what's his name, Elric's sword in a way. It's very D&D, but also very Unknown Armies in a way that I dig. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right, because I do like the idea of, like, um, you're using the Treacher's Blade, and then the GM's like, roll notice, and you roll notice success. It's just yeah. like, man, your, your friend's neck looks really cuttable right now. Yeah, like, no, I, I honestly really like the artifact abilities for this, where it's like, every week you go without murdering someone with this, it's a helplessness check, and... Bit for each week it's been, you get a that's the rank of the helplessness check. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, like it, it, it's a cool artifact. If I was doing a modern version of this, I'd call it the my bad gun. <laughs> so the question there is then, who did that gun shoot? Who who got shot by someone they trusted? But a bunch of people. Um, what are you going to do? Shoot me, bodyguards. Yeah, what are you going to do? Shoot. Me? That's a good, um, that's also another good thing to have on the side of a gun. What are you going to do, shoot me? <laughs> uh. So yeah, the room after that is Nature's Oddities. And there's like a bunch of tab, there's like, it's basically a bunch of like, tanks of formaldehyde. Animals and people with weird deformities. I mean, I, I went... This is where the, uh, the fetus swarm comes from. Oh yes. Well, it reminded me a lot of the, um, years ago in... Bangkok I went to like the the Royal Thai Forensic Museum and they it was just like that they had like fetuses in jars and they had oh, there's a tons the of mummified like corpse of a serial killer yeah uh, which was entertaining what happened to this room is you, you get an unnatural check for seeing all this freaky shit and then if you spend too long in the room then they all the creatures animate presumably because of the power of the painting and congeal into a weird mass that then attacks you. And that's kind of a pattern that we're seeing here. 
I feel that I would just like go really quickly through these rooms. I'm like, all right, fetuses, let's keep moving. Come on, let's not stand here very long. They're going to come after us if we're in this room for more than five minutes. Come on. Then that's sort of the biggest issue with this uh, dungeon crawl is everything fits into one of three categories. Like the ideas for rooms are cool, but then it's either this creature attacks you, there's some weird trap that isn't telegraphed well, or there's some bullshit riddle that I have no idea how you're supposed to figure it out because it's not like there's fucking clues for most of these riddles. We haven't really gotten into those yet. You'll see those more in the last few rooms of the dungeon. Mm. And, like, okay, what is fundamentally a dungeon? And it's, I guess, broadest terms as far as RPG design goes. It's a series of rooms that you have to go through to get to what you want. It's, it's a very linear sort of way of... I wouldn't even say that. I'd say it's just a way of arranging encounters based on space rather than time. Yeah, sure. Again, so linear. It doesn't have to be linear. You can have all sorts of branching routes and choosing to go. There's this uh, idea you see in uh, old school R uh, spaces. I'm not going (laughs) to... I'm not going to touch... that what that R stands for the ten foot pole appropriately, but um, oh, it's, I I didn't I didn't even know about this controversy. I thought it was okay. Yeah, mind. nobody can agree. Some people are like revolution. Um, uh, yeah, some say revolution. Some say fucking rebellion. Some say uh, oh my god, uh, renaissance. I can accept renaissance. Uh, it makes sense. It's a renaissance of old like yeah old yeah. school gaming. Yeah. Don't give me fucking rebellion. Revival is another one I've heard. Revival is fine. Uh, rebellion yeah. sounds like something. What's his name? Uh, RPG pundit would say. And no, let's move on. <laughs> yeah. Again, uh, we don't want to dwell on that for too long. But um, there's this idea called Jack Way in the Dungeon. Uh, this is named after uh, Janelle Jackways, a very prominent early um, RPG writer that did stuff for. TSR and Judges Guild, mm-hmm. and uh, she later ended up specializing in being an artist for TSR. But um, kind of her claim to fame is she'd make these big sprawling dungeons filled with looping routes and like changes in elevation and different paths. And going through a dungeon wasn't just a matter of traversing from point A to point B with maybe a couple branches along the way. It was about get legitimate exploration and getting the lay of the land. Hmm. That's cool. That's cool. Because, you know, so much of those games are about kind of pressing your luck of, all right, how much treasure can we get before we're too loaded down to safely return back to town and sell all of our shit? But this means as you're exploring the dungeons, you'll find new routes and you might find shortcuts that take you closer back to the... Point of entry, you find, might find new ways of entering the dungeon altogether. It's, it sounds like approaching the dungeon like a heist movie. Honestly, in a sense, yeah. Where you're walking around the casino, figuring where things are. And that's cool. Yeah, I like that. that, that that's, that's a sense of it, though. You know, you're also exploring. You aren't just casing the joint, you know. Uh, you're still having to run into all sorts of shit that may or may not be hostile. Mm-hmm. Sure. But at least you know where it is. Yeah, you, you know where it is, and you know, like, oh, there's there's a dragon in this room. Let's avoid this room, or come back when we're better equipped to take out this dragon. Or we can find something to put him to sleep so we can steal his hoard of gold out from under him. You know, that sort of shit. 
That that to me, it suggests a different mentality than your usual sort of dungeon crawl. Where you have to go in and kill everything. It's sort of you go in, open this room. Oh, there's there's something in there. Let's let's come back later um, when we're more equipped. Like it, yeah, I like that a lot actually. So you're not intent, like you're not intent, like expected necessarily to like go through each. Like you have to kill this, you have to kill this. Like you can, you will, or you can avoid it. Like there's options. And that's the thing about dungeons fundamentally being a group of encounters oriented by space rather than time. An encounter can be whatever the fuck you mm. want it to be. It doesn't need to be a riddle sure. or something that tries to kill you. You can have diplomacy in a dungeon. You can have just weird doohickeys that aren't necessarily a trap, but like some weird magical artifact that you can kind of poke and prod at to figure out what the fuck it does. Mm-hmm. I mean, the classic diplomacy thing is like, you know, dungeons with factions in them, right? Where... Yeah. You know, one side of the dungeon is goblin territory, and the other side of the dungeon is drow territory, and the goblins and the drow don't like each other very much. So you can kind of play them against each other while you're exploring the dungeon to, you know, get back up or more effectively distract them while you steal all their shit. Uh, when you're going in the dungeon and instead of and you encounter the goblins and instead of attacking you they just look at you like like look at you and be like what the fuck are you doing yeah here? exactly exactly you know they're on guard but they aren't necessarily gonna just start murdering you so you can be like hey 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 i think we can come to an arrangement here we don't like those drow either let's see what we can do and we already have all these factions in this module right yeah that would fit well. And so, yeah, like, have different parts of the dungeons, like, occupied by all these weird factions, and then you can play them off each other, all to your end goal of robbing Rudolph II's occult uh, artifact stash blind and grabbing the Ascension of the Magdalene. This module is a lot of mixed miss potential, which is what really uh, sort of sours me on it more than anything else. I'm thinking, like, if you encounter that room with the big, um, like, the clockwork thing, the clockwork play or whatever, yeah. Um, yeah. or even, like, the clockwork animals, like, those sort of rooms, like, that's what you want to do when you encounter the Order of Heroes. You'd be like, hey, don't worry about the fucking painting. There's all this cool clockwork stuff just over there. Why don't you just leave us to the painting and go and deal with that? Uh, take that away. And you could have more ways of interacting with them than just they try to kill you. Like, maybe... Maybe they're guarding something, and if you try to get this obviously valuable thing, then they'll attack you. Or you can, if you have a character that can fiddle with uh, mechanical shit, they can inspect uh, inspect these things and find different switches on them that can turn them against each other, or make them follow you around and help you. Hmm. Yeah. The big issue with this dungeon's rooms is that the ways that you can possibly interact with each of the encounters that the room r- rooms represent are extremely limited. Mm, yeah. That's like the consistent issue I see. There's cool broad ideas. I love this fucking taxidermy Fiji mermaid centaur with a mechanomantic skeleton. That's cool as fuck. Or the room full of formaldehyde mutant animals and people that uh, have been animated by a magical artifact. Also cool. But yeah, it shouldn't just be like they congeal into a, uh, into a, a fucking ball of flesh and attack you. I like your idea of like, they start calling out for their moms. And it's really uncomfortable. Yeah. 
<laughs> what do you do with that? And they can follow you around and help you. But, you know, someone with medical knowledge immediately recognizes that some of these are really valuable for study. So you, you grab that fetus in the jar that's been animated and is calling out for its mother. And, you know, you can sell this for a shit ton, but you're just carrying around this creepy uh, zombie mutant fetus with you everywhere the whole rest of the adventure. And everyone else is creeped out by it. And if, you know, say you do bring in the other factions in this dungeon, you hold on to this. They're like, dude, what the fuck? So then there's interesting decisions to be made there. We have to pick this. We have to, like, get past this puzzle. But I can't get my hand down here to, like, pick the thing. Fetus, go! <laughs> oh, yes, there we go. Perfect. Perfect. Use the, use the child labor strategy. That's right. Yeah, you're dealing with big uh, machinery. You're, you're ahead of your time on that front, brother. That's right. <laughs> it's the future of... Yeah, into the coal mine with you, boy. <laughs> As you see the formaldehyde uh, preserved animated fetus uh, reaching its tiny hands uh, in the gaps of the massive clockwork device, you are struck by inspiration. Hey, you know, as this stuff gets more widespread, these guys, you can probably get some real good work out of these guys. That's right. <laughs> That's right. See, options. Options are always good. Yes. There are interesting decisions, ways of interacting with things other than this thing tries to kill you. Or this is a weird puzzle. The, the puzzles are okay. My issue with the puzzles is more in the execution. There's just not really enough hints for figuring them out. And you, you know that with a lot of players, like, if they've got, like, now following them is a little, a, a useful little fetus calling them mama, then that immediately yeah. becomes something that they're going to protect as well. They're like, no, not the fetus. Save the fetus. Yeah. Yeah. So the next room is the toy box, which is uh, probably my, one of my favorites. It's just this big old, like, mechanomantic display, I guess, of all these min the miniatures uh, based off Rudolph's court. I mean, so many more people would want that fucking diorama over the painting. I mean, it's so useful. Like, what's going on in well, this Well, and they, they do at least think about that and just say, this thing is way too fucking heavy for you to possibly get this out of here without a lot of help. Sure. I do appreciate that they keep that in mind of like, hey, there's a lot of cool shit in here. Here's how much it would sell for. Yep. Because, yeah, it's, some, it's a dungeon crawl. It's something you're going to have to keep in mind. And don't forget... A gold piece is worth two and a half ducats, so keep that in mind. And, like, there, there's all this fun shit where, like, the members of the various factions show up in the display. The players might even be represented in the display. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of why I wish there was, like, some opportunity in here to, like, actually interact with Rudolph's court. Because that could be a cool bit of foreshadowing for this puzzle. Yep, definitely. Yep. I, rec I reckon you could get out of there. I reckon just, you just need some work. Like, fuck the painting. We'll just knock down some walls. We'll get yeah. out the sewer. Come on. Let's, this, is, this, is bigger fish, this is a bigger fish that we need to fry. Well, especially if you're dealing with, like, you know, you're dealing with D&D &D characters. It might have a scroll of pass wall or something or a tensor's floating disc or what the fuck ever, right? I put the giant diorama in my bag of holding. It's fine. Exactly. Uh, room after this is the foyer, which is full of just these clockwork knights in armor. Who, again, try to kill you. Right. But I like the idea of mechanical knights in armor with big old clocks on their chest. Maybe you could fiddle... Maybe the clocks 
make the knights do different things at different times. Like if you set try to set the clock to midnight, they fall asleep. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, yeah, I do like the uh, the idea, like the vision of like the knights of Malta, the knights of the Lord fighting the knights of reason. It's something to be like something yeah. in there that could be explored. I also just like the imagery of these big old suits of armor with a clock on their chest and a big old uh, church key in the back. Oh, that see, that's even more symbology. Like going to the knights of Malta, like yeah. are you no less clockwork knights? And that, yeah, that'd be a fun thing. Like, okay, yeah, you get the Knights of Malta on your side. After that, you got the Grotto, which is just this... I like the description of this. Where it's like... It looks way deeper than it is. And it looks like there's all these sea monsters down there. And if you actually, like, step in it, it's only, like, a couple feet deep. Yeah. And one of them winks at you. That's just just a fun little bit. Yes. No, yeah, like, there's good bits in here. There's a lot of solid imagery in here. Just broad strokes, really cool ideas. Just, uh... The interactivity is really leaves a lot to be desired, I think. That's, I guess, my... The, the actual, like, game-focused aspects of this uh, module are where it falls the most short. But there's a lot of fun inspiration, definitely. Definitely, yeah. After this, there's the Guardian Pillars. Uh, I can tell they're going for a symbolic thing here. Do you understand? Uh, the main thing that came out is, the, oh, is this like a weird Madonna horror thing? Is that is that what they're going for? Yeah, it's, it's, it's clearly a weird Madonna horror thing. Yeah. Uh, or the mother versus the... The whore, again. Yeah, like um, a temptress in, like, uh, clad only in beads. Yeah, so the deal with this is, like, you walk into this room and there's these two pillars. And one has a statue of, like, a woman holding a baby. Another one has a statue of a woman. With her breasts thrust proudly forward and her eyes are hard and challenging, though her arms reach to welcome all into her embrace. Okay, alright. Later described as... The wanton figure, as opposed to the maternal one. Yeah, th- there's they are described as the maternal pillar and the wanton pillar. And also, and it's it's called the wanton figure in like in the text. It's not like it's like yes. <laughs> no, like there's no labels on this. Like diegetically, this is just how the book describes them. The maternal and the wanton pillar. Okay. There's like a little uh, caption on these. Where it's, like, you're supposed to figure out that you're supposed to give offerings to both of these. I have no idea how. This is kind of what I mean about the puzzles that don't really signal their uh, solutions very well. Don't give any hints through riddles or anything. So, like, if you don't give any offerings and you try to pass through the pillars, it just shocks the shit out of you. And if you only give offerings to one of the pillars which I, I, I'm not sure how you're supposed to figure out you're supposed to do it separately for both. Uh, if you only give an offering to the maternal pillar, you are treated as having no hardened notches in violence, and any instance of violence necessitates a violence check, and no hardened notches are accrued, so you're just scared of any violence, which is interesting for a dungeon crawl. Mm-hmm. Uh, but unfortunately, this is like the second to last room, so it's not going to really come up until the big... Uh, brawl at the tavern at the end the wanton pillars effect if you don't give her offerings are a bit more fun uh when faced with an attractive member of the desired sex the character must make a helplessness check failure means that the character must devote all of his energies to betting the object of lust oof but yeah so either you become extremely scared of violence or dangerously horny yeah, that's that's the only two choices. I think that um, 
the offering should be precious bodily fluids. Um, you have to choose to give your preciously precious bodily fluids to. If we're going to go with really like male gazy um, archetypes, this is like the mother of your child in the future versus uh, the wanton temptress, and you have to choose which one you give your precious bodily bodily fluids to, and then you get your your advantage. So the solution to this puzzle is one of the characters has to jerk off on the pillars. Yes. Yes. Is that what you're at? Yes. Okay. Here's my playtest question for you. What if all the player characters are women? They, they pass through un, uncovered. It's just like... They, there you the, go. The, the statue's not at them, like, like as they pass. <laughs> they, they, the wonton pillar reaches up as if to high-five you. They, they say something in New Latin, which translates to, You do you, girl. <laughs> Good answer. Good answer. Yeah, women should just be able to pass freely in guys... Like, one of the guys needs to jerk off on the pillar for them to get through. What about gay guys? Um, well, I mean, hey, force of will, dude. I think they should pass. It's just like, okay, no, no, you're fine. Um, I mean, gay guys also have moms. I mean, that's true, but it's sort of like... The, I don't think the maternal figure is meant to be your mom, unless you're going, like, real Oedipal with it. Um, I think it's meant to be like the I think that's kind of what this is going for and it's it, it's about the weird Madonna horror thing that happened to Mary Magdalene as I assume maybe they're kind of gesturing at here sure I was thinking or I, Mary in general in the Bible I was thinking more in like the sort of like uh, which way western man like um, tradition and, <laughs> and, and and like I'm thinking of like the, the what's the called the Wojaks type uh, sort of uh, conundrum Let's get past these pillars before we get in any more trouble. Yes. Yes. Agreed. Uh, from here is the chessboard, which I don't even understand what the fuck's going on here. You're supposed to, like, there's a bunch of, like, statues re- obviously representing archetypes. Yeah. And if you, like, follow a path laid, it ke- you keep running into the archetypes, and if you just kind of go try to go straight for the door, you get attacked by actual parasites. Because they're also here apparently uh, hey now we have D&D stats for actual parasites I guess maybe I don't know the chessboard seems a bit weird it's another puzzle that's just a bit too obscure I mean I, I, I think the imagery of a chessboard where all the pieces are archetypes is really fucking cool uh, I'm not against that but the puzzle itself like the last one is just kind of obscure to the point of me I could easily imagine players getting stuck on that for a long fucking time I think it would be better if it would be good if, like, you have to choose an archetype, like a, a champion, and then you can only walk across the chessboard if it's a big chessboard, like, in the, like, you can walk one spot at a time if you're a pawn, or you could do, like, a little, like, a little L if you're a knight or whatever. Like, if you're the Knights of Malta, you can only walk in L's. Another bit of common wisdom you see with dungeon design, actually, is that you shouldn't have the core objective of the dungeon be behind puzzles mm. because it's just going to halt the game in its fucking tracks. Mm. That makes sense. It It's good to have puzzles as little side objectives that if players get too frustrated with them, they can just be like, fuck this, I'm not going to bother. And then go off to do other shit in the dungeon. <laughs> like, yeah, you're going through the dungeon and there's little side rooms that you don't have to go in, but it's there. Why not go in? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's one of the advantages when you have this big old sprawling thing that's full of loops 
and uh, forking paths and shit where, yeah, you just you might follow a path and you end up uh, in a puzzle room and it's like, oh, let's let's figure out this puzzle or, you know, players are like, dude, it's we're th- four hours into the session. I don't want to fuck with the puzzle right now. Let's let's go do something. I, else. I don't want to like figure out that I have to put the paintbrush from the Caravaggio statue into the keyhole to get past this fucking door. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's the thing with like any sort of puzzle in RPG. There's a lot that can go wrong with it in the GM to player communication. There, it's very easy to go overboard where it just becomes trivial, and it's very easy to give too little information where it becomes impenetrable. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a hard line to walk, and so honestly, the best practice is yeah, I think having them be optional because then you can lean more on the side of them being actually a challenge without them just totally disrupting play yeah. if players encounter them. And of course, this dungeon doesn't do that at all and puts the final objective behind two extremely obscure puzzles. Yeah. And then yeah, the last room is the uh, uh, Magdalene. The Ascension of the Magdalene. It's in this nice uh, chamber with a statue of Caravaggio. Actually, no, sorry. It's behind the statue of Caravaggio on the chessboard. And you get this whole bit of the depiction of the Ascension and the hallucinations you get. It depicts a voluptuous, bare-breasted woman kneeling on the floor with a short skirt draped around her waist. She is suffused with light, seeming to glow from within, and her face is locked in... A passionate, odd expression. Her eyes, though, seem detached and dead, almost as if they are not partaking of the same glory as the rest of her. Uh. Oh my! Oh my fucking god! You're right. It is the fucking naked goddess tape, even down to the two fucking jocks. Yes. Yes. Her hands are raised in supplication to two figures that stand before her, lost in the shadows created by her radiance. They appear to be men in some sort of short tunic. With the paulettes or armor on their shoulders, floating in the darkness above the woman, almost totally obscured by the light she radiates, the shadows seem to form the face of a man crying out in fear and loss. I don't know what that's all about. Oh, is anyone approaching the painting and kneeling at the rail will experience a vision wherein a ring of small metal keys tumbles end over end down to a cold floor, accompanied by an intense feeling of loss. The scene changes then to two half-clad men standing in a stark-tiled room, shielding their eyes from an intense light. There is a feeling of intense awe and reverence associated with the scene. Finally, there is a rush of images of various sexual acts, and with a growing sense of understanding, followed by a burst of sun enlightenment, which fades with the vision and cannot be explained. So it's supposed to be a prophetic painting, I guess, of the ascension of the naked goddess. Uh, now I wish there was just, like, it was just clearly just... It was just the Naked Goddess Ascending with people with cameras and, like, it's clearly 1990-whatever, but painted in Caravaggio style. Really, like, uncanny to look at? Yeah. Yeah, that would have been cooler, I think. I mean, I don't get why the Naked Goddess Ascension is given so much weight compared to, like, any other Ascension. Um, I guess tits? I don't know. There, there's plenty of archetypes up there with tits, I'm sure. Um, yeah, I don't know it was they were tying it into like the one of the core like themes of the game, or like the Naked Goddess tape, especially first, second, dead was very much a bigger thing. Yeah, I know it's yeah, I would do it differently. <laughs> no, I, I get it. I mean, but even, like 
you know, reading the original Splat books, it doesn't seem like sure you there was a cult that came out of it, but there's been a lot of Avatar cults. Imagine if you get to the end of the dungeon and instead of a painting, it's just a videotape. You're like, what the fuck is this thing? <laughs> yeah, there's there's fun shit you could do with this. Oh, oh no, it should be like there's a videotape, but it's been painted on by Caravaggio. Oh, of course, of course, the Caravaggio tape. And that's the instead of a canvas, it's just on the case of the VHS tape. Yep. No, that makes sense. Yeah, you know, I I, I don't get it. I don't, I don't get why this ascension is such a big deal compared to like any other. I mean, does this imply that there was a similar figure? In the clergy before the naked goddess ascended? I think so. I mean, it could be just that, like, the fact that it was such a sexy ascension, or not a sexy ascension, <laughs> means that it gets more interest in the occult underground, but from a, a metaphysical standpoint, it's not any more significant than any other ascension. Yeah. It, it's, you know, just it's lascivious, so people pay more attention to it. Yeah. That could be it. Ah, this is the porn archetype. So, of course, we're more interested in this I one. I mean, you can, you can imagine it like... Which, I mean, to, to be fair, that that also describes the exact sensibility of this role-playing game. Yeah. To a certain degree, too. So. I mean, you could, you could easily highlight that in a campaign by having like encountering some group yeah. which is like, like, who just say exactly what you just said by being like, don't know why everyone gives a shit about this fucking Naked Goddess tape so much. I mean, it's important, but there are other things that are important. Why does no one care about... Um, yeah, there's other archetype... Uh, artifacts no, like, like it's the warriors like uh loincloth thing um was it loincloth or it's like a sling thing it, it's disappointing when it's like okay the artifact associated with the ascension of the artist is just foreshadowing for a different archetype it's not necessarily that the that caravaggio ascended as the artist is like you're gonna be the revelator or the prophet or something he ascended as something yeah. sure i mean he his statue is said to be, yeah, uh, standing against the back wall is one statue that is obviously newer than the others. It depicts a scruffy-looking man standing with a palette and a paintbrush in his hands. Anyone familiar with the man recognizes him immediately as Caravaggio. Mm -hmm. So that kind of implies that his ascension is related to his abilities as an artist somehow. Yeah. And we know that the artist is an archetype in the official three books, so that, that that's what points me towards the artist as opposed to something else. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Hold on, let me just check something which just occurred to me. Actually, no, was Ivan Stoll in existence at this point in history or not? Oh, God, I don't think so. Okay, probably not. It would be funny if he was, <laughs> and he was involved in this. Do we know if, um, am I remembering right, Ivan Stoll is uh, the one made for uh, Catherine? Uh, oh, yeah, you're right, he's you're right. The, he's, the sex, he's the sex robot? Sex robot, yeah. And, and I think it's only a rumor that he's made for Catherine the Great. Yeah, he could have been uh, older than that. He could have been all the way back then. Yeah. Um, Do we know if Rudolph II took any male lovers? I uh, don't think so. Uh, I think it was really much a... It's... Oh, maybe he was made for Caravaggio. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah? That's cool. That's fun. And he's there just... Maybe he was made for Caravaggio by the Order of the Hero of Alexandria. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. He's involved somehow, just like smoking a, a, like a, a cigarette of like an old school cigarette, just being like, "Oh, he'd probably be bereaved. His entire reason for existence was just 
it was killed not that long ago. Mm-hmm. He still has a lot of soul searching to do. That's right. It's early in life. <laughs> that could be your framework if you wanted to throw this into as a flashback episode. It's like even Style tells his story of when he was a young clockwork. Like one of you could play him. There you go. That's good. So that's the end of the dungeon crawl. After that, you hand off the painting to whichever faction was the one that the GM had hire you. And then all the other factions show up at the tavern all at once and try to steal it. Yeah. And it's a huge clusterfuck. And, and Yakety Sax is playing in the background. There, there, there's not much advice given for running a combat encounter where the Knights of Malta and invisibility-powered uh, Edward Kelly and the Golem of Prague are all trying to push your shit in Yeah, at the same time. Honestly, how I'd end it would be a freeze frame of <laughs> just everyone shows up at the bar. Yep. But not actually run the combat. Yep. If you're doing this as like a flashback thing. Did, did you catch the reference to Drawing of the Dark? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Uh, I think at this point, pretty much any Tim Powers book is pretty much just straight Unknown Armies canon. Unless it's named Declare. Yeah, pretty much. No, I like that. They, they do give like... Hey, here's what happens depending on which faction gets their hold on the... That That is cool. That's useful. But it seems like there's a, there's a missing bit in between the, the end of the dungeon and then the aftermath section. Yes, I would agree. I definitely agree. And then there's like some plot hooks given for each of the factions afterwards. Like, hey, what if the golem runs amok? Or, hey, what if... Yeah, what if Edward Kelly gets possessed by the ghost of Faust? Because he's staying in his house. The storm god Petrutus is still around, apparently, and the Rosicrucians are looking into it. I would have, like, brought that in, yeah. like, um, if I was going to do a, a continued campaign involving the Storm God Petrunus, I'd have him, like, starting to wake up at the start of this, so it's, like, it's just, it's constantly raining, even yeah. though it's winter, even though it's just before Christmas and it should be, like, I don't know, cold and snowing or whatever, but it's just raining, and that's just an, an annoying, like, thing in the background of, like, why has it been raining all week? Uh, anyway, let's go and find this painting, and then you're running through the streets of Prague, like, trying to deal with and that sort of explains why you're not immediately like jumped by all these groups like yeah, everyone's yeah. stuck in the rain having a bad time sure that's good that, that that's a decent excuse sure um <laughs> i think Stuart pate friend of the show actually ran a campaign that drew a lot from this mm-hmm. yeah i say that because like we accidentally found it his game wiki Looking up Unknown Army's uh, historical shit at one point. So, hey, yeah, it might be fun to pick his brain about how that went at some point. What did he use? What didn't he use? Definitely. So, from there on, it's mostly system stuff. It gives D20 rules for firearms, wheel lock firearms specifically, and Unknown Army's rules for crossbows and wheel locks and plate armor. Um, it gives D20 rules for avatars. Yes. Which is interesting. I, one thing I did like about that and, is I did like the sort of, I thought it was elegant um, with how they managed uh, taboo rolls where you make an avatar skill yeah. roll with a DC of 18 and if you're successful, you lose one rank. So the more powerful you are, the higher uh, levels you are. Oh, the rolls. Yeah. No, if it's successful, it loses one rank. So yeah, you don't want to get too high. Otherwise it gets more difficult. Well, that's it. That that actually yeah, fits. The that fits the um, the tone. It fits the idea pretty well. I mean, that's they they went with something pretty similar with avatars for third edition. So yeah, 
Did they call them gifts instead of channels? Because channeling apparently uh, only came to be used in common parlance with the spiritualist movement. So since this takes place before that, they're going to call it something different, which I dig. This is the section where they have a piece of art, which I'm like, this looks like a character group. Oh, absolutely. I'm just like, wait, they're pretty much just implying that the savage is a Native American. All right, all right, let's go, I guess. Uh-huh. No, they aren't even implying that. I'd say, like, they, they're pretty much straight up saying, like, yeah, this is what people at the time period thought of when they think of a savage. Yeah, that's true, yeah. I and mean, that's what they're getting at. They give some historical context for some of these archetypes, which I dig. Like, um, the necessary servant was called the courtier at the time. Makes sense to me. Court- the court- isn't, that, isn't that courtier? The courtier. Courtier, yeah. Courtier. <laughs> um, and then it gives a couple new archetypes, which are interesting. Uh, there's the Magus. Yep. Which is, um, they pretty much straight up say doesn't exist anymore. It could. It's just thought about this, like having the Magus. It's like, it's just someone who refuses to take, like they, they put magic into the supernatural over the natural. I think you could adapt that for like a modern version of that. Um, someone who... Uh, so uh, I, I think there is a difference. There is a difference. Um, I think this is one of the cases where kind of the old version of an archetype fell down and a more contemporary version that fits the current culture's conception of that idea mm-hmm. has gone up and that would probably have a different name. Maybe. So I'd say the Magus is generally associated with wisdom, you know, a certain degree of rationality. You know, they're like a sagely figure, right? Well, think about it. It's like the taboos are like they have to believe in the supremacy of magic and they have to devote themselves to mastering that. I don't know if they're like that rational, necessarily. But maybe. No, but they're respectable, I'd say, would be the big thing, right? Sure. Like, John D is on there. Uh, they also have uh, Simeon Bar-Yohai, uh, the man who wrote the Zohar. Yes. Very respected uh, religious scholar. Respected the same way as John D. Whereas, I'd say now almost, occultists are... A lot less respected these days. Someone studying the arcane isn't like some sagely wizard. It's some kind of sketchy and dangerous dude like your Aleister Crowley's or your Anton LaVey's. My my example of a, a counterpoint would be um, Justin Sledge who runs the Esoterica channel. He's respectable. Justin Sledge is absolutely trying to channel the Magus yes. again. Absolutely. His big old beard and yarmulke. Yeah, no, Justin Sledge, definitely old school wizard. And I expect that he plays it up a little bit. Sure, sure. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd say the Magus isn't around anymore. Yeah, but the Rake definitely is. The Rake... Def- okay, okay, go on. Tell us what we've replaced. Rake, with. definitely. Uh, the Rake probably has a different name, but the, what I was going to get at is that the Magus has probably been replaced with the Occultist. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Uh, which, I know, maybe this is just my sensibility, but I think Occultist has a lot more of this connotation of sort of untrustworthiness. Mm. Like, dangerous personalities. Again, Anton LaVey, Aleister Crowley, uh-huh. uh, Nick Land... The, the those sorts of guys that try to build a cult of personality around themselves and take a lot of advantage of people in the process. I don't know. I, I do like the idea of Justin Sledge attempting to like deceit the the like Nick Land from the Invisible Clergy. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And what I would say is the taboo, at least, of the occultist is they cannot 
solve any problem through mundane means that they are capable of solving through magical means. Because I sort of think of the modern conception of the occultist is fundamentally about trying to find shortcuts, mm-hmm. trying to find uh, some kind of cheat codes to life in the universe. So if you're playing a fallen Magus, like, for example, like fallen Alistair Crowley, you're just a Reddit atheist. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I, I'd say Crowley was probably, to a certain degree, consciously god-walking. Not god-walking, but channeling uh, the occultist. Yeah, but I'm, I'm thinking of, like, if he Honestly, falls... Honestly, Edward Kelly might have ascended as the occultist, because that's sort of one of the first figures that comes to mind when you think sketchy, untrustworthy occultist. So maybe it wasn't such a big difference in, the, like, modern, more modern occultists. It's just closer in history, so we can see the the, seed, the, the seediness of it more. Yeah. There's definitely a transitionary period, and honestly, like, the transitionary period is very well respected by, very well reflected by the collaboration between Edward Kelly and John Dee. Mm. Right? You got the old school Magus with John Dee, and the new school sketchy-ass occultist with Edward Kelly. Yeah. And as far as the UA stats of the Magus, it's interesting because it's, um, only really works if you either have rituals or are channeling this avatar at the same time that you're practicing some sort of adept school. Mm-hmm. Which is very uncommon. I don't know. You could have a modern magus which is just exploiting the replication crisis, being like, no, it's science. <laughs> Read what I published. Well, no, I'm talking about, like, look at it, look at its channels, though, right? Like, like, there's channels related specifically to casting spells. Yeah, true. Which the magus avatar in and of itself does not get. They need to have some other sort of thing on their character sheet that gives them access to rituals or formula spells. But I also kind of like that, um, that you, you do need some sort of access to spells to really do much with this school, to, like actual working magic. That's cool, yeah. And that would dovetail in well with Edward Kelly perhaps channeling a later version of it or John D. channeling it. I like the idea of an avatar path specifically designed to be followed while you're also an adept. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's cool. A uh, friend of the show, Cleo, suggested the nickname Moonlighters for those guys, and I'm a fan of that. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, Magus is uh, a avatar path that strongly encourages moonlighting while you do it. Now, the rake definitely just still exists. I don't see why it would stop existing. Yes. It's just the fuckboy now. <laughs> it's like... It existed already. I was trying to think of the name for it, right? I was trying to think of the name. So this conception of the rake is kind of coached in having a lot of disposable income that you can spend irresponsibly. So, you know, this avatar isn't called the rake anymore. Maybe it's called the Nepo Baby. Maybe. I mean, yeah, there's plenty of fucking Saudi princelings that could, like... um, Oh, yeah. (laughs) Some, like, channel the rake. It's fine. It's just got a new name. The Dilettante. Yeah. Is also a good one. Oh, what if that one Saudi prince that has spent all that money on like anime TD games on Steam is the god? That's the great, fantastic. I don't know, maybe it's so fucking good. Yeah, I really like the channels on this one. I especially like the one where you are extremely persuasive, but you can't convince anyone to do anything dangerous that you aren't getting involved with. Yeah, yeah. That's really fun. And there's plenty of stories about like how if you're like friends with like the type of person who has lots of money but doesn't have a good sense of um, vulnerability 
And if you're not yeah. rich, and but they're your buddy, you, you could get in much more trouble than they will. And it's not good to be friends with them. Actually, wait, you've, you've played in a game where you played an Avatar of the Bad Influence, right? Yep. That might be the modern concept. That was a bit different. All right, fair enough. I mean, fair. A rake is often a bad influence, but it's not necessarily one. Yeah, yeah, not necessarily. I'd say the bad influence was a bit different the way I conceived it. It was more proactive while a rake cares about having a good time and doesn't give a fuck about the the consequences, which can be a bad influence, yes, but I think with the lower case there. Yeah, that last channel I really like. Honestly, I think that should be it should like swap the fifty one to seventy with the ninety one. Yeah, maybe fifty one to seventy just straight makes you immortal, which is a lot. Yep, uh, you you just don't age anymore. The idea I really like just being able to be supernaturally persuasive in a very limited fashion, mm-hmm. but in a limited fashion that also encourages you to do stupid shit. Mm-hmm. That's the fodder that great games are made of. I do like the idea of like an avatar of the rake who's just super old, and so he, yeah. he can't stop being the rake, like, because if he drops below 50%, he'll just turn to dust, or like 90% or whatever, if we swap them around. Yeah. Um, that's fun, because they yeah. have to, so like, it, desperately... There should be that higher threshold needed that's really... So it's, it's actually hard to keep that thing going for too long. Well, that's it, because that thematically it fits with the rake, is like the aging rakes get its hard, harder and harder in time to keep up, but this that power sort of like circumvents that, but it doesn't really, it's because it just means that you get, you have to keep partying or you'll die, literally. Yes. And I also like that as like, you know, once you're immortal, you need to start spending all of your time keeping up with trends to keep that avatar threshold up there, above 91. Yeah. You need to be cool or you die. I'm 400 years old. I don't care about the latest <laughs> trends, but I have to. Yeah, that's a really fun character dynamic. This this shares some stuff with um the avatar of the hedonist, yep. which is in uh Right, uh written by Melon. Mm-hmm. And especially like uh, the avatar of the hedonist also has a channel where you are immortal, but um it's the 91. And I think that works a bit better, and maybe for our current version of the rake, maybe the rake's kind of split up. Yeah, maybe. Because the headness and the rake definitely have some conceptual conceptual overlap. Yeah, definitely. But I think they're different enough. Like, having a Nepo baby avatar, I think is it's... I think that's a universal enough concept and a distinct enough concept from the headness that can be its own thing. Yep. And then the last thing we got is you. there's mechanomancy mechanics for D20. All right. Again, I really hope that there's someone that was like running a standard fantasy game and then just, maybe didn't even run this adventure, but took all the avatar mechanics and mechanomancy mechanics and was like, yeah, this is just going to be part of my D&D world building. Why the fuck not? Yeah. Fuck it. Why not? My setting doesn't have gods, has avatars. Yeah, why not? As avatars and archetypes. Yeah, you could take that. You could like remove some of the uh, assumptions of the Unknown Armies setting, but just take some ideas and like apply that to a fantasy setting, sure. and it might be quite interesting. Sure. Well, we've talked about this for a while. Yeah, we um, have. I think I was going to... What I wanted to talk about, well, we'll talk about another time, but I'll give a little preview for people. I want to talk about, at some point, uh, more in-depth about like sort of potential UA-style dungeon crawls. 